2: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful. Live. Welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyds.
3: Thank you.
4: Thank you. You like that little reverse into the sofa that I did then? Very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. We know it's nice outside so we appreciate it's it. nice
3: Stratford, isn't it?
4: It's lovely, isn't it? Ed and I have been punting.
3: We haven't really been punting, actually.
4: I just lay like that and read some poetry while Ed did the all work. I think you've got the upper body strength that I like. I like. wish
3: that was true. I wish that was true.
4: Just so we, we know, so this is, this is a podcast we've done for a few years here. How, no judgement, but how many people in the room are listeners or have listened to the podcast? We've got a lot of new listeners. Yeah. That's good. And, and how many people have just come to have a look at Ed Miliband <laughs> in the flesh? That's not bad. That's good for the ego. I mean, there is a third option. Well, what is the third option? How many people have just come for a look at David Tennant? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Did that punch your I think you they, in
3: I'm not going to say how many have come to see you. No,
4: no, no, no. Spare me that, spare me that. Um, so everybody's you, come to see you. Of course. Do, do, you want to, um, do you want to explain for the people who haven't listened to the podcast what it is?
3: What is it? So, so um, some of you may know um, that in 2015 I was leader of the Labour Party, um, and we we lost the general election. Um, and Jeff interviewed me in the run-up to that election. It was one of the few interviews that went quite well. Uh, <laughs> And so then in 2017, you approached me and said, look, there must be some good ideas out there that we can talk to people about, good ideas to change the world. I've tried 42 other people, and you're 43rd on my list. (laughs) Would you like to do it with me? Uh, Do you want to say who else you try? I mean, it's a long list. It's a long list. We don't have time. David Tennant was top of the list. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we've been doing it for a long... Six years?
4: Yeah, basically... As a progressive person, there were things going on in the news, both here and elsewhere, at that time, which just felt so depressing. I thought, what if we created an alter, alternate reality yeah. uh, of, of, of what the world could look like? And the podcast is about ideas.
3: And there like is it. a now name for the alternate reality, which is the Jeffocracy.
4: Yeah, or the Milliverse,
3: it's more the Jeffocracy, I think, isn't it?
4: Yes, yeah, although you've turned on it recently. Yeah, yeah, I think But we... let's not get bogged down yeah. in that now. I, yeah. I'm not sure it's the best introduction to well, the our podcast. Sort of, our scrambling... marital dispute,
3: yes. I think, is the no, is best keeper.
4: But it has been a burgeoning bromance as well, as yes. the, the, the other element yes. to it, as people will see yes. by the way we're sitting on this sofa. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I go closer? <laughs> so, what I thought we could do is just explain the nuts and bolts. Of today to you because I know whenever I go to anything. Jeff anything. recently
3: turned fifty, by the way, so he has to take on and off his glasses. I've
4: had cataract surgery, is the truth of it. I can't tell. Oh God, sorry, yes. Sorry. It's, right. it's a bit <laughs> insensitive.
3: But... It's just because at the beginning of the podcast he used to always say that he was from a different generation, you see.
4: Borderline millennial.
3: Borderline millennial. Whereas you're a real boomer. Yeah. And so the so I was quite self-conscious about the three-year age gap. <laughs>
4: We're going to have a a very interesting conversation, we hope. Tell us about the conversation. It's about
3: climate education in schools and whether we should talk about climate change in schools. I think we should. uh, How we should talk about it. And we've got an absolutely brilliant uh, set of people to talk about it. Scarlett Westbrook, who has co-written the Climate Education Bill with Nadia Whitton, the Labour MP. Scarlett is also the youngest person in history to get an A-level in politics. Wow. Younger than me. And so we'll talk to her about that. Uh, Also joining us is uh, Eleanor Langthorne, a senior lecturer in teacher education at Worcester University, and Mary Colwell, who spearheaded the campaign for the new natural history, GCSE, which sort of a little bit answers these climate issues, but it will also be a chance to talk about climate activism and a whole range of other things.
4: And we'll take some questions from you as well. So we've been asking you for your reasons to be cheerful, so do you want me to read some of these to you? Yeah, I do. Okay. This one says, I just saw Ed paying for his parking. (laughs) This reassures me that even when you get to those lofty heights, (laughs) you still have to wait five minutes for a parking machine to decide that your card is in fact
3: okay. Yes. I didn't fall over, actually, in the sort of point between going to the parking machine. There were no nasty accidents that happened to me. But it's
4: very unusual for you to interact with a machine like that. Exactly. I didn't actually interact
3: with the machine. I used Ringo, but there are other apps available. Uh, (laughs) This is from Louis. My
4: Glastonbury ticket arrived oh. in the post, which I think yes. means three more opportunities yes. to see Ed Miliband live yes. on stage this year. Yes. So, so what is your plan for Glastonbury?
3: Well, look, I mean, it's like this. Elton John is playing his last ever Glastonbury, and I just thought I couldn't say no to him. So you're going to do... not actually believe that. Maybe they believe that. Uh,
4: uh, no, Ed's it... going to fill the role that George Michael did on that duet that they did. <laughs>
3: I, I went over my head, actually.
4: Uh, it's, uh, this, this happens a lot with pop yeah, culture. Yeah, references. exactly.
3: Gordon Brown ate my 90s. That's the basic... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that's the sort of problem, as, you, as Jeff often says. No, so I'm, I'm performing at Glastonbury in the left field, and I believe also maybe in the Green Futures tent. Wow. And I did it last year, and it was brilliant, so I'm really looking forward to it.
4: Any uh, crowd, crowd surfing planned? It's not a good
3: idea for me, is it really? <laughs> Not at my age.
4: Uh, This one says, reason to be cheerful today, it's my friend Carrie's 40th birthday. We bonded over our mutual love of David Tennant 15 years ago. (laughs) Uh, That's when we came to see him in Hamlet. Is Carrie here then? I'm guessing so. It'd be weird if she wasn't.
3: Hi, Carrie. Where are you, Carrie? Oh, a big round of applause for Carrie and her 40th birthday. birthday.
4: Uh, I love David Tennant too. We'll do a couple more. This one says, our son has found a flat so he won't have to move back home with us.
3: <laughs> no, but let me ask you, somebody with uh, uh, two kids who are 12 and 14, I mean, is that, uh, you know... Is that you... OK
4: to turf them out onto the street? No, no, you, know, you, no you have to do it at least late. You, isn't them? it
3: quite nice to have
4: them living with you? No. <laughs> <laughs> OK.
3: OK, fair enough.
4: Jackie says, geothermal energy getting some long-overdue attention. Interesting. Thanks for that, Jackie. And uh, finally, this one says, sunshine weekend, tickets to this. Smiley face emoji, thumbs-up emoji. That's a classic emoji. What is your most-used emoji, by the way?
3: I don't know. Head in hands? (laughs) (laughs) What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? My
4: reason to be cheerful, Ed is, I'm going to tell you after we've heard about yours, because I know you did something
3: yesterday... I went to an escape room nearby in Banbury, and we escaped. Wow! (laughs) I know, that's pretty good. And we've had two other sort of misses at the escape room, and we escaped with 27 seconds to spare. Uh, And it was about finding this... I won't give it away, but finding the secret ingredient in a chocolate factory. Wow! And we did it. I mean, we did it with a humongous number of clues, I've got to say... Wow. What do you think you need to, to be a successful escape room artist? Resourceful, uh, clever, I mean the teamwork. Dexterous. The t- teamwork. Yes, it's is probably among, it. the, the, among the four of us. It was Who, who was weak kids. link in your team? Me, though? I think definitely. Right, I did ask you about There boys. was one point when one of my kids was using a magnet on one side of a wall to get a key and I was just told by the other two members of my team to just shut up because I was <laughs> I was sort of telling him what to do, go left, go right, and I was sort of giving him the wrong instructions and I was just I was literally sort of silent for the benefit of the team. So I know I was definitely the weak link, but we made it out. Uh, what about you? Uh, new part-time job in an escape room, giving
4: clues to people who seem atlas, <laughs> So that's, uh, that's going very well for me. Now, because we're on stage at the Royal yeah. Shakespeare Theatre, uh, we, we, we thought we should acknowledge that some ways. So I know you had acting aspirations when you were, when you were younger. You, you,
3: Did I? You,
4: you've told me this before, that at school drama was... Oh, I
3: appeared in a drama at the age of 11, yeah, in my school. I think I was Henry VIII or something. Wow. Uh,
4: yeah. Um,
3: I was a good Henry VIII.
4: <laughs> and, and your wife Justine was previously yeah, she was an a child actor. actor,
3: yeah, yeah.
4: She was. I mean, would would you consider reuniting on stage? A two-hander? What me and? Well, maybe is Macbeth and Lady Macbeth? I think not, really. No, uh,
3: but I mean, it's amazing to be here, isn't it? It there is. are people amazing. in our dressing room sort of, I think, who are being made up for Hamnet? Yes. This is nearby. Yeah, yeah, it's an incredible space. We're, we're, we're really
4: happy to be part of this. Um, shall we get our guests out? Yes,
3: could you welcome uh, Scarlett Westbrook, Elena Langthorne and Mary Colwell. Hello. Hello. You weren't sure
4: whether to get up and do the
3: handshakey thing? Yeah, what a, should I have done?
4: It feels like a lot of effort at our, our age, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> um,
3: now, look, I've got to start with you, Scarlett. Scarlett and I uh, know each other well. We've spoken on uh, platforms together. Can I just ask you about this A-level politics thing? So what, tell the audience what age you got on an A-level in politics. In.
5: So I self-taught the A-level in government politics when I was 13 in Year 9.
3: What was that like? I mean, I thought I was a nerd scholar.
4: (laughs) Can I just say if that was an American audience, they would have applauded the 13 (laughs) now.
3: Why did you do it?
5: I don't even know anymore. Like, generally looking back, the the real reason is my older sister is seven years older than me, and at the time she was doing her 11 politics, and she wanted nothing to do with me because she was 17, I was 10. Like, no one hangs out with a 10-year-old at that age. So I thought to become her friend, I could, like, steal her books and find out what it is 17-year-olds like. So I tried, and then I was like, what do you think about Margaret Thatcher? Like, thinking it would be a little bonding experience, but instead it just made her really annoyed. Um, And then the next year, I broke my leg, and I'm a dancer and a figure skater, so I suddenly had loads of free time, and I realised I already knew the whole entire content of this A-level, so it just made sense to me to do the A-level off the back of that. So a failed bonding attempt.
3: Well, it's pretty impressive. And talk to us about your role in climate education, because that's how we first met and what you've been doing and your activism?
5: So I was one of the leading organisers of the School Climate Strikes in the UK and we had four key demands. The second of them was teach the future. So educate people about the climate crisis, make sure that people know about the climate crisis. And at the climate strikes, we consistently found that that was... The demand that the public were the most supportive of so we decided we needed to make it its own completely separate campaign and then in 2019 Labour also adopted that as a policy but of course in the general election that policy like never ended up being implemented because Labour didn't win so I decided to write my own bill to try and get it through another way and that's where we are now with the climate education being the first ever student written bill in the UK backed by MPs from every single party.
3: And and were you taught any, were you taught climate education in your school?
5: I had one question in what ended up being my GCSE geography exam, and that was, list the benefits of climate change, eight marks.
4: Right. The, The benefits. The benefits. The benefits.
5: Yeah. So I didn't do GCSEs because I was the COVID year, so it was my mock, which meant I got feedback on my reply. And I tried to put it into context, say, so like, we can grow grapes, but everyone's going to die. And I got, <laughs> <laughs> I got a comment from my teacher saying, don't include that last bit.
3: Just mentioned the grapes. Eleanor and
4: Mary, I'm right in thinking that climate wouldn't, would have been a thing when I was at school or even back when Ed was at school. I've sort of got about half a memory of um, learning about CFCs and the ozone layer, perhaps in geography lessons. But what, what's, the, what's the history look like on this?
1: Mm, tricky really in terms of having a knowledge of climate change it's it's been out there in the world for 40 50 years since they you know had declarations to american government saying here's the issue james hansen i believe um but in terms of figuring in our curriculum um it's been part of the geography and science curriculum since 2013 but only in a very very small way. So you might have touched on, as you say, environmental issues. Probably the era of learning a bit about acid rain. Yes, yes. yes. You've got those images of the skeletal fish and the the trees that are all degraded. Um, and you've learned about CFCs and the ozone layer. But the big issue of climate change was perhaps absent from your I mean, learning.
3: I mean, I was a long time ago, but I can't remember anything about. Well, about what I learned. No, but I can't remember anything about, about <laughs> learning anything to
4: do with these issues. No. I remember CFCs, because there was a lot of hairspray about it. It was the late 80s. And it oh, seemed to be a very yes. sort of pertinent issue. Is, is part of the problem that it, it felt for, for some time, or it was framed for some time, I should say, as a, a more politicised issue, less empirical than it is? I
1: think one of the, the issues is the, the absence of it on the curriculum. Teachers are massively overburdened in terms of the amount that they are trying to teach their young people and if something is additional to the curriculum if it's not there in an explicit way it could be hard to make time and space to to deliver that there are lots of competing demands for educators literacy numeracy as well as all of the the content that you're having to deliver if it's not explicitly there it's difficult to make yeah the time and space to add it in
3: And, and mary you spearheaded the campaign for the natural history gcse just before we sort of get onto that and what difference that will make, what's your perspective on, you know, where we are at the moment?
2: Where we are at the moment with, with an understanding of yeah. natural history, really, well, really rock bottom at the right. moment. So surveys have shown that, that most children, between, well, 80% of kids between the ages of 8 to 15, 80% can't name a bumblebee or a bluebell or a blue tit. Yeah. So even the most common wildlife we've lost any kind of conversation with, any kind of relationship with at all. And
3: talk to us about, then, the role of the natural history GCSE and what it will... It's coming in...
2: Well, now, I think 2026. Right. uh, The government did say 2025, but I think that boat sailed. So 2026, I think, is the most likely now. Um, But the idea is that, um, behind the GCSE, is that you could... Any young person can walk outside their door and they'd be able to name, record, understand, collect data about... Uh, relate their local natural history so they get a pride in their localism in in the nature that's on their doorstep and understand it but not only that they can relate it to the wider picture and the international picture so you live live with nature we all live with nature but as I've just said 80% of us sort of, it's like a, a backdrop which doesn't impact and, and on us. you said
3: it's been delayed. I mean, how hard was the campaign to make it happen? It was
2: really hard. It was really hard. And uh, at times, it, well, it was just, you know, a fairground ride, isn't it? Highs and lows, and you make a few steps forward, and then it all comes crashing down again. So, um, But I think a lot of factors came together for it to be agreed. There was a growing consciousness about climate change, always natural history gets is the poor cousin of climate change. It has been for a long time. People separate them out, whereas, of course, you, you can't really so understand have a one without... We climate and nature
3: crisis. They're yeah. so interlinked. They, yeah.
2: they are completely interlinked, but they're different facets of the same thing, and I don't think you can truly understand climate change unless you know how nature is thriving or not and responding or not.
4: And, and is the natural history of GCSE, is is that where climate would sit in the curriculum or the the ideas are broader than that more ambitious than that tell us a bit about that elena so the
1: the course content is currently with nick gibbs and and there is still the potential and the aim and the hope for a first teach in september 2025 so i've i've been able to be part of the dfe expert panel on creating shaping this so there's 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 the hope that it might still happen in 2025 but yes it, it is not a gcse in climate change that is not what it and and that's unfortunately how the media picked it up when it was first announced on that earth day i think back in 2021 alongside the sustainability and climate change strategy. Climate change will be one element, looking at how species are being affected by changing temperatures, the movement of species, for example. But actually, it's much bigger than that. It's about species in their habitats. It's about how they thrive, where they thrive, why they thrive, connections and interconnectedness to, let's say, atmospheric conditions and water conditions. And
3: Eleanor, you're training teachers, correct?
1: I am, yes, at the University of
3: Worcester. And and what what do teachers say to you about... The curriculum how much it should be reflecting climate how much it doesn't
1: so i work with pre-service teachers i'm training teachers that are going into schools and i do a survey annually with them when i introduce the ideas about the united nations sustainable development goals through a sort of critical lens let's question these goals and how they fit into our education system because they're, they're not explicit they're not in our curriculum and they are not in our core content framework that we deliver as educators for the initial teacher education PGC course. And so when we're introducing them to them, we ask them questions about what are you seeing about climate and ecological emergency in your own schools? And the responses are predominantly little. It's missing from the sort of the practical, logistical ways that we are working in schools, but also in terms of curriculum conversations. And so I, I run a, an education in climate emergency enhancement activity, an optional activity, it's 12 hours, the training can sign up for. And when they talk to me about how the benefits of undertaking this EA, this enhancement activity, it's about facing what they are describing as existential threat, existential dread. What we need is for those educators to really be feeling the issues and connected to the issues and facing them themselves, to be in a good position to then be able to answer and go on that journey with the young people who are learning about it. So I'd say there's something about training teachers for it. And we recognise that that there's a bit of a gap there. The survey that was done by Teach the Future in 2021 of over 7,600 teachers recognised that about 72% of them do not feel confident. And it's not that they didn't have the knowledge, It's not that they didn't know about climate change. Some of them did, some of them didn't, but they didn't feel confident in addressing it with young people, partly because of the psychological response of young people. How do we we deliver it in a way that might still engender hope rather than a sense of um, going off into hedonism or perhaps into collapse and depression? So so it's a little bit about working with those educators to be able to deliver it in the most effective way for them and also for the pupils.
4: Scarlett, on on young people, what are your thoughts on what needs to be done to prepare young people for a a different kind of world.
5: I think there's a few things to this. The first one is the fact that climate does exist in the curriculum currently, but it's limited to optional subjects at GCSE, so triple science and geography. If you don't choose those subjects, you won't learn anything about climate change at all, and climate change is going to affect everybody regardless of what subjects they choose at GCSE. So that's simply not good enough. We need to broaden that and put climate education into every single subject like a golden thread. That means looking at how food security is going to be tackled in food tech looking at how we communicate about the climate crisis in english and the arts looking at how we even got to this point in the first place in geography history and then i think the second I'm definitely voting for you scholar <laughs> the second thing here is we're seeing this rise in climate anxiety the royal college of psychiatrists have now acknowledged it as an actual mental health condition and one of the reasons for that is because if you don't know about something you're going to be terrified of it and we're currently not being taught about climate in schools, so it's natural that children young people are reacting to that with you know like almost clinical levels of anxiety and actually that level in some cases. I think the third sort of stream here is on skills and vocational skills in particular. It's not enough to just teach us about the climate crisis. We need to act on it too. And the way we do that is by decarbonising. What better way to start than by reforming apprenticeships and vocational courses in construction so that they learn about things like retrofitting and green energy and that sort of thing. So we're also equipping the next generation of workers
0: At one point, I think you made
3: a little bit of progress with the current government. I think it was about four education secretaries ago. So, (laughs) in other words, a few months. Uh, I think it was Nadeem Zahawi was the education secretary. (laughs) Uh, Didn't go so well. But where where has it ended up with the current government?
5: So I was one of the people on the Department for Education's review on climate change and strategy and sustainability and all that sort of stuff which ended up when the Deems of Harvey announcing three changes at COP26. One is that they would start phasing out gas boilers with green energy pods from 2023. The other was that teachers who were trained via apprenticeship would have to start teaching about climate straight away. Actually not have to because it was a strong recommendation and climate change is also strongly recommended to be introduced into primary schools for the first time from next year.
3: But that doesn't do what you set out just earlier and what your bill does because it doesn't integrate it into the curriculum
5: it doesn't integrate it it doesn't provide extra resources for teachers it doesn't provide extra training for them it doesn't give them more time like it's not mandatory either it's just a recommendation and yeah simply not good enough mary
3: what's your perspective on what the natural history gcse achieves and what it you know how much further there is to go does it reflect what scarlet's and Eleanor set out.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, I think it goes to the entry level, actually. I think a lot of the language that we hear about climate change is about emergency and crisis and anxiety and fear. And I think the worst thing that we are doing is handing on to the next generation. This planet is just a big problem to be solved and something to be fearful of. And what I'm hoping is that if we can reintroduce the, young, the next generation, back into a love of the natural world. And, I'm, and I mean that word, word love in the true sense of the word, coming with responsibility and, and passion and understanding. Um, once you get a relationship with the natural world, you will be able to tackle your local environment. You'll be able to do the things that you can do with the wildlife around you. You help wildlife, you've sought climate change out. The two things are really interlinked. And so I'd like to switch the conversation to that of understanding and observing, being involved in, nurturing, a much more positive approach to it. And then I think a lot of the climate change, we can approach it with a more positive mindset. I
3: mean, I suppose what's striking about what Scarlett is saying is it's in a way people are bombarded with gloom and doom in the media about climate change for reasons we totally understand. Actually, in a sense, one of the most powerful things Scarlett was saying is it's much better to teach people about that so they understand hmm. what can be done, what can't be done.
1: I'd say it's, it's about more than the knowledge, though, Ed. Uh, it starts with knowledge, but actually it's about action. Uh, and that's where the hope comes from. It's about the doing. And, and the sustainability and climate change strategy that we've mentioned already, um, Nadim Zahawe's introduction in that, that's structure. right, the one yeah. that was published in April, talked about recognising the, the, the scale of this the honesty in recognising the scale of it. This is problematic. It's doom and gloom for a reason, because it is a very difficult issue that we need to face. But nature connectedness is recognised as perhaps something of an antidote. Uh, working with nature, connecting with nature, having a, the MENE survey also of 2021, I think, talks about how nature connectedness drops off uh, at the end of top, top end of primary school and right the way through high school and doesn't pick up again until people are sort of in their early 20s, mid-20s. But the nature connectedness index measuring people's nature connectedness enables us to recognise that being more nature connected leads to pro-environmental behaviours. It leads to pro-environmental behaviours not just in the domestic sphere, but also in terms of conservation. People move towards doing more in their spaces. So nature connectedness through the GCSE in natural history perhaps might be one of those things that pulls us out of that sense of doom and gloom
4: and and where will it sit in the the curriculum this GCSE is it something that will be Optional, an option presumably and and how how would you go about um encouraging take up of of that
2: I don't know that you have to encourage it very much, to be honest. I think there's a real desire out there. When a public consultation was done for it, there was an overwhelmingly positive response. I mean, we are a very nature-loving society. I mean, just look at how many people watch nature programmes and the the membership of nature organisations. But at the moment, it's not accessible in a way to everybody everywhere. And the whole idea of the GCSE was to make that something anybody can do. When I came up with the idea, it wasn't the sort of middle-class people who got access to nature Whenever they wanted, it was the kids walking past my living right in the center of Bristol. It's the kids walking past my house every day really good. that live in the very center of the city. That they have they know there's wonder all around them every single day, and that's what they, they were the people that I want to inspire. So we get this nature literate pipeline of people who are positive about the planet coming through, and we will then tackle these enormous issues which we're talking about, which really are enormous but you'll only create a revolution through hope you won't do it through fear
3: that's good I agree with that um scholar how much in your advocacy for this have you faced the charge of of indoctrination the natural history GTSE is clearly an important step forward, really important step forward. Mary, you're massively to be commended for having sort of driven it in the way that you have. But clearly there is we all agree there's more a lot more to do. So what are the obstacles? Is the indoctrination question, you know, this is politicizing our kids is that what people, what, what are the objections people offer to you?
5: So, the first time I was ever in the Daily Mail was two articles. They were published about 10 minutes within each other. The first one was Meet the Eco Warrior Indoctrinating Your Children. And the second was Inspirational Young Girl Becomes First Student <laughs> Policy Writer. <laughs> I, about 10 minutes within each other. Amazing.
4: Wow, do you remember your first time in the Daily yeah, Mail? Yeah, I don't think it
3: was quite as nice as that. Uh, <laughs>
5: So, uh, there has been some backlash in that article, but I don't think anyone apart from me has really seen it. When it you've been talking to policymakers
3: to... and said yeah. to policymakers, They
5: tend to say, like, oh, we agree with you, but we don't want to scare people. And I had a very interesting comment from an education secretary who said, you don't understand that we have people telling us we can't include that sort of stuff.
3: I mean, basically, this requires a big curriculum. It needs to be threaded through the curriculum, in your view, not parceled off in the curriculum. How is that? How is that we're going to well, make... Well, it,
1: it's already happening, Ed. It's already happening. Teach the Future, you'll know a youth led organisation. Yes, your yeah. organisation, yeah. have been working to create um, a, a track changes curriculum where they've been writing curriculum documents adapted for a variety of subjects. I think MFL has been done, geography, every science, GCSE English, subject. every GCSE subject where they have uh, added where you might be able to include sustainability, uh, elements of global citizenship, uh, and climate and ecological emergency to your existing curriculum so that teachers aren't having to uh, do masses and masses of work to, to sort of create from scratch. And also some really transformational GCSE papers have been written, uh, an economics one and a maths one, uh, with the work of uh, Kate Raworth. She's been involved in the economics one in particular. Who wrote this book
3: called Donut Economics. Are the, the GCSE curriculum boards and so on engaged in this or is it presumably got to get the say-so from government? Got to get it?
1: the say-so from government. We, we, we have to have a course content adopted and agreed before right. any exam boards can make any changes. Some exam boards have been trying to incorporate more stuff
5: in but they can't really do anything unless the government tells them to. So OCR for example with the natural history GCSE have been really engaged.
3: And are you making progress with the Labour Party?
5: We are. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm seeing you two times in the next 3 days. All oh, right. Meeting on this bill. Right. Um, so well the climate education bill is officially backed by Labour, hopefully it will be in the manifesto. I guess yeah. we'll find out <laughs> later yeah. on in the week.
4: Can you make a promise on that here and I'll now? I'll do my very Please best.
3: Do. I'm a big as you know I'm a big supporter. I think this is really really uh, important to do. And and Eleanor, in your experience, to what extent is there this, indoctr- this sort of...
1: I know there's a concern. And um, when Nadim Zahawi again published, yeah. I think it was February last year, the paper about guidance for teachers and impartiality, uh, and that uh, raised concerns. Well, what am I allowed to say? What am I allowed to talk about? Can I, can I talk about yeah. climate change in the classroom? Do, do I, you know, this is tried and tested science. This is unequivocal This isn't about impartiality. This is about climate reality.
4: Is is there anything we can apply from this in how we think about communicating about biodiversity and the climate crisis to people more widely?
2: I think uh, you, you were talking earlier about how to insert it into all the different subjects. I think with natural history, that's incredibly easy. You know, nature has inspired every aspect of our culture from music to poetry to art to literature to science every part of it is in there and so getting telling the stories with it's all about whether it's talking about climate change or talking about nature. Everything is about what stories you tell. We're all storytellers. We've all been storytellers ever since we were that little. You know, when, when you read your bedtime stories to your kids, you don't tell them about hedge funds or climate emergency. <laughs> you tell them about animals. Hedgehogs. You know, you tell them yeah. about wildlife. You engage them in this very emotional way with the natural world. And so I think we have to tell the right stories in the right way to the right audiences at the right time. And it's not the same. It's not the right approach for everybody. Everybody. It's not one size fits all. We have to be emotionally intelligent about the stories we tell. But stories change the world. They always have. The, the, the world is changed by stories. And, and stories are data with soul, basically. That's what Brené Brown said. So <laughs> tell the right stories and the data gets in there and you start changing. Things. That's
3: really good. That's a good line as well. And to what extent is this discussion sort of reflective of the wider problem with education, which is it sort of doesn't really, it doesn't, it prepares people to pass exams, but doesn't really prepare people to be citizens of the country?
2: I think if I can just, yeah. with natural history, nobody knows where to put it. And that's the question I got all the time. Well, is it an arts? Is it a science? Is it a humanities? I was going to ask that
3: actually, and I was too embarrassed to ask
2: Does it have? Can't it be all of those? You know, why are we so compartmentalised? You know, you're not just a politician, are you? You're a dad, you're, I don't know, play sport, whatever you do. You have many different faces, we all do. And yet we compartmentalise the world into these rigid boxes and say, you fit in there. And I think we need to break that mould for the future and get... Much wiser, more holistic thinking into it throughout it just, just isn't taken seriously enough in society or in politics. It's a it's still a niche subject for people who wear anoraks. You know, it's not taken as mainstream. It's not taken as stuff that will not only change the world but change people's mental health, help us to understand ourselves better. It 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 just needs to grow. And I think bring it out of the shadows and put it in the spotlight. It's not an adjunct of biology. It's a rich and wonderful subject in its own right. And, and can I say one thing? When we write all these curriculum, when we do all this stuff, all, all we, can we please only use language that's used in a poem? Because a lot of the technical language, a lot of the very distancing... Net zero, for example. Net zero <laughs> is just ugly. Yeah. You know, Let's talk about language that actually inspires people to do something. We have the same outcome, but we just have people who want to do it. I think there are some strategic things that that need to be done. There are some strategic obstacles that are currently
1: in the way. Our system is very much a tick-box exercise with regards to education. There's a curriculum, intended learning outcomes that need to be met. Ofsted will be measuring you on this, this and this when they come to visit your school, etc. And at the moment, climate and ecological emergency could be recognised as a safeguarding emergency, as well as a knowledge emergency. That is not part of any one of those tick box test measures. Ofsted are not looking for information on climate and ecological emergency in school. It's not part of our core content framework for how we train teachers. And it's one tiny part of the curriculum, if you've chosen those options of geography and triple science at GCSE. So until we have some strategic change about the content of those courses, we 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 won't see that happen but yeah the purpose of education and really drilling down to why do we do what we do why do we put groups of children in boxes for the day what is it we want them to come out with we need some transformation
5: I think that the education system is really outdated and that it's been preparing us for the workforce but like not today's workforce, the workforce of maybe 50 years ago. The stuff I did at A-Level a few months ago, most of you who did those subjects would have probably done the same content. Like, it's not been updated to reflect the fact that the workforce has changed because of the climate crisis or because of all of these other things that we're seeing today. I shouldn't be learning the same things that people, like, 40 years older than me learned. Maybe some That's of them... That's you
3: some.
4: and me, <laughs> uh, <Foxborough> <laughs> Lakes. <laughs>
5: yeah. Should have been updated a bit, you know?
3: Well, look... It's been a brilliant uh, discussion. Please give a big round of applause to Scarlett, Mary, and Elena. He's been Jeff Lloyd. Uh, he's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jason Spieth. thank you, very well, everybody. everybody.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.